0: Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome everyone back to the Need to Know podcast. I'm very happy to be joined today by Brenda Wineapple, who is an author, an historian. She's presently teaching at the Columbia School of Arts, and she has a book called The Impeachers, which is about the Andrew Johnson impeachment, which I think we often forget uh, that there was the first impeachment of a president. It came right after Abraham Lincoln. So Brenda, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here.
0: Well, I want to, I think, go first into explaining what was the political dynamic like. You have Abraham Lincoln assassinated in 1865. Civil War ends. Johnson comes into office, but then things, even though... We're supposed to be unifying the country, we have this impeachment that occurs. Can you help us understand that dynamic?
1: Well, you know, it, it, it uh, makes me laugh in a wry way because the first thing, um, two, two things in your sentence, not just impeachment, that's the first, but the second is unifying the country. And, you know, it's so present in so many ways. But in 1865, you can't imagine a more divided country because you're just having finished, barely finishing, the Civil War. In some places, in Texas, for example, people are still fighting, and in certain cases in the South, no one's even heard that the war is really over. So you have a uh, Civil War ended, you have an, uh, the first ever assassination, horrible, of an American president, and then a man named Andrew Johnson is sworn into office. He was the vice president. Um, no one really knew what was going to happen. And just it, it's basically a heartbeat later. It's only three years later, which is nothing really. Can't even finish college in that time. And you have the first ever impeachment. So it's really a very difficult time.
0: A very turbulent time indeed. And I, I guess one of the questions that gets asked about this particular time period is what was Lincoln's choice of Johnson about? Why was Johnson put on Lincoln's ticket in 1864? And then after the reelection and then assassination, end of the Civil War, why didn't Johnson enjoy some goodwill from being on Lincoln's side?
1: One of the things to remember is that in 1864, when Lincoln was running again, he didn't assume that he would win there was a good chance that he was going to lose. So he wanted to, in very contemporary terms, balance the ticket. And what would balance the ticket better than choosing a man, a senator, former senator from Tennessee, which is the South, who was on a different team. He was a Democrat. He was a war Democrat. Lincoln was a Republican. So Lincoln chose Johnson. He left off the Ticket the man he had had because that was from New England. He was an abolitionist. So he just thought this would be much better. He didn't think, one, he didn't think he was going to win necessarily. So he thought that that would help. And then when he did win, he certainly didn't think he'd be assassinated because it never happened. So Johnson came into office um, as a a kind of outlier. Um, But he had a very good reputation. Because he was the only senator from the South who stood against secession. He, was, he, he wanted to preserve the Union. And that's why he was kind of heroic in the North. And that's why Lincoln chose him. So here he is. And he had said during the war, Johnson had said, the treason must be punished. So the war is over. What do you do in that case? How do you deal with 13 states that seceded and johnson as i said he inherited some of lincoln's goodwill and the republicans wanted to work with him but soon he started taking executive actions and instead of consulting with congress he alienated members of congress because they were in recess and he started reconstructing the south in his own way, and for, in a sense, his own purposes. And he really wouldn't compromise. One of the sticking points at that juncture after Congress came into session um, was uh, it began to pass legislation. And the Republicans were in the majority at that time. And the Republicans are like today's Democrats, so so just we have to reverse you know, what we think. It's not the Republican Party of today. It's really more like the Democrat and vice versa. They began to pass legislation that would pave the way for the states in the Confederacy to come back into the Union. As far as Johnson was concerned, they couldn't come back right away. No problem. Nothing had happened. You can't secede because the Constitution doesn't allow for it. And people were kind of shocked at that response because it didn't seem that that was right and proper. Moreover, what Congress did was start passing legislation to deal with the fact that you had 4 million people who had formerly been enslaved. They were now free. But what do you do with them? They They hadn't been allowed to read and write. And in the South, the seceded states started passing their own legislation putting in practice what later became known as Jim Crow. Um, So the Republicans, particularly the radical Republicans were horrified by this. Um, They wanted to make sure that everyone had equal rights under the law and passed civil rights legislation. Johnson vetoed the civil rights legislation and he began vetoing enough legislation that it became impossible, very difficult to work with. So that began to create the separation.
0: You you mentioned that we need to calibrate our thinking of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party.
1: Think that they were the anti-slavery party.
0: The Republicans being the anti-slavery party, the Democrats wanting to really continue kind of the old South traditions just without slavery
1: exactly
0: okay and johnson's position that you couldn't secede i think was that generally the the democratic position at the time that okay we fought a war you so to prove that the union would hold and that you could not secede therefore there's no punishment there's no no just come right back into the fold
1: It wasn't necessarily the Democratic position. It was his position. And one of the interesting things about Andrew Johnson was that he managed to alienate people in both parties.
0: So a man without a party, much like John Tyler was.
1: Yeah. And in 1868, you know, it was an election year. It was very similar to what we confronted in 2020 with the first impeachment of Donald Trump, because We knew that there was an election coming and and one of the uh, difficulties I think that people were confronting, why do you impeach someone when there's election coming? Just vote the person you think is improper, say, out of office. And there was a very similar situation with Johnson because uh, 1868 was an election year. I bring it up partly because one of the things that's interesting, Johnson um, thought he deserved uh, to be nominated in 1868 and run for president on the Democratic ticket, and the Democrats didn't nominate him. <laughs> you know, so that's a, an example of how he had managed to alienate ev- everyone. Back to your question, you know, in a sense, one of the Republicans, Thaddeus Stevens, said made a very good point. He said, "To say the states didn't secede because it's against the law." is like saying the murderer didn't kill the victim because murder is against the law,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which makes a
1: certain kind of sense, really. So these states did secede. It's hard to argue that they didn't. They had their own government. (laughs) And so since they did that, then because Congress, and this is interesting for the current day too, because Congress, is allowed to determine the qualifications of its own members, Congress thought, well, we can decide who should come in and who should not come in. So that's very interesting because Congress did not want to seat people from the South, the representatives from the South, because those dates hadn't been reconstructed. So the question was, how do you reconstruct them? Johnson had one idea, Congress had another idea. They came to loggerheads. And that was a very difficult kind of situation, particularly because at the same time, there was enormous amount of violence going on in the South against primarily black people and white Republicans. So the questions were really important and frightening and life-threatening. These were not abstract questions by any means. That's why Congress wanted to pass civil rights legislation. And that's why Congress then worked toward passing the 14th Amendment. And Johnson went out of his way to campaign in the States against ratification of the 14th Amendment. So this got worse and worse and worse.
0: So there's this division then, and even and he's even alienating his own party.
1: Yes. And he's managing to consolidate radical, moderate, and conservative Republicans. Because Republicans, I said it was the anti-slavery party, but make no mistake, <laughs> political parties are divided within themselves. This is not new. So... That party, the Republican Party, had three different components to it. The radicals, the conservatives, the moderates. And Johnson became so extreme and so outrageous and so hostile to members of Congress that he managed to unify them all, particularly when he violated the law that Congress passed. And once he did that, it's like thumbing your nose at Congress, and then immediately the House voted to to impeach him.
0: And how did how did the vote go down? Uh, I guess breakdown by party uh, in the in the House, and then what happened after the House voted to impeach?
1: Well, it, the 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 breakdown in the House was as you would expect. It was it was broken down by party, but it was an overwhelming vote to impeach. And that is to say the Democrats were the minority party, but all Republicans. And again, as I said, there were Republicans who were more like Democrats than like Republicans. They had never seen a situation where a president basically thumbs his nose at a, at a law, you know, that Congress had passed and the Congress to be mm-hmm. fair had passed it to kind of rein Johnson in. They didn't want to impeach him. They wanted to rein him in and kind of stop him, and in particular, they didn't want him to fire the Secretary of War, which is like the Secretary of Defense. And they had passed a law to prevent that.
0: This was the Tenure of Office Act. That
1: was the Tenure of Office Act, and 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 they passed it because the Secretary of War, a man named Edwin Stanton, it was credited as much as General Grant was winning the war. Stanton was protecting, was was working with Grant in the army to protect, as I said, the white Republicans and the black people in the South and allow them to go to the polls. So Stanton protected the army, the army protected the blacks, and Johnson wanted none of it, so he wanted to get rid of Stanton. And then that's why the law was passed. And what what Johnson did was he fired Stanton, and then all hell broke loose. I think I can say that, right? But it did, all hell broke loose. So the party lines... We're still overwhelmingly against Johnson because all Republicans, conservative, moderate radicals voted to get him out as soon as possible, impeach the guy. Then the trial went to the Senate. And then, as we know, things become very different and difficult. It was very difficult to convict. It took, you know, it it actually, Johnson was acquitted by only one vote. That one vote by a man named Edmund Ross became, this man, Ross, became a chapter in JFK's Profiles in Courage. He stood up against his own party. The Republican Edmund Ross voted to acquit Andrew Johnson. And JFK won a Pulitzer Prize for a book that people still remember, Profiles in Courage, every time. I turn on the media, somebody's talking about why can't somebody in Congress stand up like a profile in courage? And I think, oh, dear, this guy basically, he basically, it was quid pro quo, I'll vote to acquit you if you give me some this, some perks here, some jobs there, some things from my friends.
0: So so you would say it's a, a profile in corruption rather than courage?
1: I would say that. Yeah.
0: Interesting, interesting. Well... Aside from the one vote, why was why was it so close in the Senate?
1: Well, you know, there are several reasons. the 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 most awful reasons is there was money changing hands. You know, I would have done anything to prove it. You know, when I looked. I looked through all the boxes at the Library of Congress. I looked through all the papers. You know, I was looking under the desks, you name it. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I was sort of dedicated to this. And I could get circumstantial evidence, but I couldn't prove it. But there was, there was what I'm calling quid pro quo. So that's the worst element. The better element were the arguments that were launched. Let's not do this. There's an election coming up. he Johnson didn't incite, he didn't you know, start a war. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't do anything um, that we could really say warrants such a terrible step as throwing him out of office. Particularly at this time, there was another reason too. If Johnson was thrown out of office, he was the had been the vice president. So in eighteen sixty eight. The question would be: if he loses the presidency, who steps in? Because it was no vice president. He didn't have a vice president. At the time, it was the president um, pro tempore of the Senate. That's how it worked then. Not not like the House of not like the head of the House of Representatives, but the president. And that was a man named Ben Wade. And and nobody wanted Ben Wade in the White House because they figured if he was in the White House and then the Republicans would lose the election because he was too extreme. Hmm. So the Democratic press was saying things, oh, like, get Ben Wade in the White House, he's going to put Susan B. Anthony in the cabinet. You know, got to be careful (laughs) of this guy. He's out there. He likes women. (laughs) So so people were nervous. They didn't want to take this unprecedented step after an unprecedented assassination and an unprecedented war. so And they also had, don't forget they had uh, Ulysses S. Grant waiting in the wings. And he was a very taco going to your initial question. He was a unifying figure.
0: So I, I'm curious, you know, at the time the Senate was elected by state legislatures. Exactly. And You know, of course, representing an entire state even now makes the Senate different, but it was much different prior to what was it? The 17th Amendment, right? How did that dynamic with state legislatures having a say in the Senate, a more direct say in the Senate, how did that affect this impeachment trial after the Civil War? States obviously had a lot to gain or lose.
1: States had an enormous amount to gain or lose. But remember, that most of the, I think all of the Southern states, perhaps except for Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, um, they hadn't been seated yet. So those state legislatures hadn't, I mean, they sent people to Congress, senators to Congress, but they hadn't been seated. So Mm. when you're talking, as I said, I think the exception is Tennessee. So, So the country really hadn't been fully reconstructed yet. It was under construction I think would be the best way to put that so in that sense you're really dealing with the West and the Midwest and the North Um, so and as I said right at that particular time you're breaking down in the Senate along party lines except for what was called the seven recusants and what those seven people were were Republicans who voted to acquit Johnson. And they did so for the reasons I said. Some had interesting constitutional arguments that, you know, basically that they wanted to preserve the office of the presidency and that impeachment was a bridge too far. Some were probably influenced, as Ross clearly was, I think, well, I can't say that but I have no evidence, but he was in my mind anyway. There's enough. There's enough s- suggestion that if he didn't actually get money, he—I know he got jobs for himself and his friends. So there. So so there were a host of reasons, and you couldn't do anything really about it. You know, um, Charles Sumner was very interesting. He was the senator from Massachusetts. He'd been the one who'd been caned within an within an inch of his life in the senate many years before 1857 well it wasn't that long in any event and one of the things he said and i found this very moving he said that this impeachment trial is one of the last battles with slavery and so what many of the republicans felt is that they really needed to remove johnson in order to reconstruct the country along the lines of equality for all. And that's what they felt they were fighting for. Not everybody was fighting for that.
0: Well, since you started the book, there are now 40% more impeachments of presidents than when you started the book. So what does the Johnson impeachment really have to teach us today? And thinking about our audience, since we have a lot of congressional staffers and policymakers, you know, why should they care about a guy who was impeached in the 1860s when you've got this impeachment that's so right up front in our face?
1: Well, as we started, and I'm still struck by the language, we heard it in the inauguration ceremonies of, you know, Joe Biden. We've heard it, you know, on um, the stump for the last year. We, we we know it would be naive to think we didn't have an extremely divided country, you know, polarized in many ways, um, almost balkanized. And as I said earlier, um, there is precedent for that. This is not the first time that there was violence in Congress or that, the country, parts of the country, weren't at odds with one another in very uh, deliberate and threatening ways. There was a civil war. You can't get worse than that, really. There was a presidential assassination. You know, thankfully, that hasn't happened. You know, since Kennedy. So it was. It you. It was an awful time. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. I think that's important to remember because. Um, the process worked. One of the things that in writing the book and listening to the arguments and thinking about everything from constitutional kind of rightness and, and, and legitimacy and, and, you know, governance to corruption was there was a process in place and it really did work. Um, I think I would have voted to, not that nothing West, but I would have voted to convict Andrew Johnson but he wasn't convicted and the roof didn't fall in. It felt like it was going to, but it didn't. And there were enough uh, laws and rules and, and thought, you know, deliberate thought that, that obtained, that, that sustained us. And I think that's really important, you know, to think about and to learn from, you know, um, because it was bad. We don't think about it because we go from the, you know, Lincoln. Oh, Lincoln. Great. Oh, Grant. Great. Or corrupt or whatever you think of Grant. But, but you think of, you know, one to the other. And we don't think of that because it's almost too hard to think about, but it's important. I think that we start thinking about it now.
0: Yeah. I'm a big fan of the context of history. And part of the reason why I've been getting historians such as yourself onto this show To really explain their research and their and their writings and uh, one of the discussions you and i had prior to setting this up was i think just in conventional wisdom people's historical memory seems to jump from lincoln maybe hits grant and then goes on to like teddy roosevelt Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and and you're missing the big guys (laughs) you're missing you know 40 years of the presidency it's very interesting uh, time, so I I'm fascinated to to get this kind of context. Uh, I I kind of hold the contrarian view that you know everybody says our politics is broken, but it's a democracy and Congress was designed for some gridlock. And when you say right, we we've never had a worse time, well you're kind of you've forgotten about the Civil War then, because uh, <laughs> that was pretty bad.
1: I mean, that is really bad. I mean, you can't get around that. I mean, in some ways you could argue, I think reasonably, we're still dealing with that. But that was, you know, in a it was in an indirect way, you know, not indirectly for many people who are affected, but that you, you couldn't get away from the fact that that's what the country was like. And in a sense, that's what the war was fought for. And you have to think of a whole generation of people, men went to the war, and didn't come back, so there's so much heartbreak. Um, there's so much grief. You're grieving for a president. You're grieving for the people that you know live down you know, the street from you. So, and they have different views. So it's a it's a very very difficult time. You know, um, poignant. One of the things that always troubled me when I started was why didn't I know about this you know fairly well educated i i wrote the book partly because i was curious i thought i I don't know about this and i would ask people and they didn't know and i said oh well you know it, it wasn't important i thought that can't be right
0: well i'm glad that you've written the book it's called the impeachers the trial of andrew johnson and the dream of a just nation Brenda Wineapple, it's been a pleasure talking to you. One thing that you were, you were just saying, the thought came to me, we can't really work through the problems of our present without knowing our past. Amen. <laughs> I think that uh, reading your book will help us gain more of that context. So recommend recommended reading and also the New York Times recommends it as well. Uh, so thank you, Brenda, for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you. Hope we do it again.